Vanderlaer, Christina Bauer with the Texas Lime Alliance. How are you in this cold winter day? I'm good. It's, it's, it's a nice day. Good. Yeah, you're used to it in Colorado, but us Texans are freezing. I wanted to meet with you again today about your new book and speak to you about Pan's Pandas and the ever-growing realization of how it's affecting our youth as well as adults. We're also going to be discussing some very important, desperately needed uh, discussion on stomach health and Lyme-related eating disorders. So welcome today and thanks for joining me. You are quite welcome. I'm really glad to be here. Great, thanks so much. Little about you. Dr. Kendra Lair is a Lyme literate internist in Colorado, Denver. After completing a residency in internal medicine in 1979, he opened one of the first practices in the U.S. in what was then called holistic medicine. After becoming an expert in nutrition and environmental illness, he became ill himself with Lyme disease complex, otherwise known as persistent or chronic Lyme. His long road to recovery has given him insights into what patients are going through. His background in internal medicine trained him to understand the complexities of his multisystemic illness. His knowledge of environmental illness has enabled him to evaluate immune dysregulation and his study of energetic medicine, spiritual alignment, and healing from trauma has yielded insights into how to help patients shift their belief systems into being well. Recovery from Lyme Disease is his new book that we're going to be meeting today for the second time to discuss. And by far, it is the most thorough book available on Lyme Disease Complex. It will provide patients with information that will guide them on their healing journeys, as well as supplying doctors instruction on appropriate diagnostic and treatment approaches. Dr. Kinderler enjoys teaching his patients, hence his name in German means teacher, the medical community, and we're honored to host him again for our fourth interview. His book is going to be available on Amazon in March. Please don't forget to leave a review. My first question to kick us off today is, what is Pan's Pandas for our audience? Okay. In 1994, Susan Suido, uh, an excellent researcher in the field, she first described children who developed uh, mental health issues following a strep infection. So these were healthy kids, had a strep throat, just like most of our kids do at some point in their childhoods. And then they suddenly develop OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, anxiety, uh, eating disorders, other mood and behavioral issues. And, um, and then after describing that, she presented another, another paper a few years later with her colleagues describing 50 children with this same <laughs> syndrome. And they coined the term PANDAS, which stands for Pediatric Autoimmune Neuropsychiatric uh, Disease Associated with Streptococcal Infections. So it turns out that streptococcus is not the only bug that can do this, that uh, other bugs have been demonstrated to do it. And everything from common cold and sinusitis to different viruses like Epstein-Barr virus to 
certain infections that are known to be tick-borne, like Bartonella and Mycoplasma. So, it, so because it's not only strep that can cause these mental health problems following infection, the name has been changed to PANS. PANS stands for Pediatric Acute Onset Neuropsychiatric Syndrome. I frankly have some issues with, with that nomenclature. For one thing, I don't think it's right. on the pediatric population. Right. Secondly, it's not always such an acute onset. It's not like you have a strep throat and then boom, now suddenly there's anxiety and OCD and panic attacks and oh my God, awful things. It can be more back and forth, up and down, gradual, which is what we tend to see in kids with Lyme disease complex. So I would, I would like just to make people aware that it doesn't have to be a kid and it doesn't have to be a sudden onset to have this neuropsychiatric syndrome associated with microbial infections. Now, what we know to be true at this point is that in effect, it's an autoimmune issue. I'm gonna backtrack a little bit. As many of your listeners probably know, chronic Lyme, which I call Lyme disease complex, because mm -hmm. it's always more than Lyme. It's always right. Lyme plus co-infections, plus, plus um, aberrations in the nervous system, immune system, endocrine system, sometimes the gut and on and on. So that whole thing I call Lyme disease complex, and I describe that in the book. So kids uh, developing Lyme disease complex or any kid with these infections, what happens is not that these, these microbes invade our tissues the way we think of a wound infection or a strep throat for that matter, okay. but, but rather what they do is they invade our software, not our hardware. And, huh. and it dysregulates our regulatory systems, which in particular refer to our immune system, our nervous system, and our endocrine system. Now, it's all connected. We really don't have separate systems. What happens with these infections is something called molecular mimicry. For example, rheumatic fever. Rheumatic fever typically is when someone gets a strep infection, such as a strep throat. Antibodies to that strep then attack heart valves because there's some structure, structural similarity in the cells between the strep germ and the heart valves. So there is this cross reactivity and our own antibodies attack our heart valves and that's rheumatic fever. It is both an infection and an autoimmune reaction. And we're talking about the same thing with PANS, but in this case, the autoimmune reaction is attacking nerve cells. So basically what happens is Children have a long list of symptoms. I, I've already mentioned some of them, but the most prominent tend to be OCD, anxiety disorders, uh, often uh, eating disorders, including anorexia, and, um, and then depression, all sorts of mood ability, particularly anger issues, oppositional issues, sometimes rage issues. I mean, it's, you know, kids enter their, their quote unquote terrible twos, but this is really over the top. 
What about um, ADHD, ADD? Would any of that fall into a symptom or a direct correlation with infections? Yes, yeah, so they often have cognitive issues. They often have a decline in school performance. They can have motor and sensory abnormalities. They can have uh, something called choreiform movements, which are involuntary movements or grimacing. Uh, grimacing would call, fall under the category of tics, you know. That's what I was wondering. Thank you. Tics, yeah. Th these are not uncommon, um, but they can have other somatic symptoms from bedwetting and sleep disorders and, and headaches and other pains, for sure. The whole gamut, the whole gamut. If, it's interesting, I'm actually writing a, a sort of an opinion article right now for a journal, medical journal. And the thing is that, that um, the symptoms of Lyme disease described in children and adults parallel the symptoms and manifestations we see in PANS. Yeah. And, it, you know, it may all be significant overlap in terms of pathophysiology. And, and there's, this is very interesting. There, just this month, two articles came out. Uh, one, of them, one of them is by uh, Amy Cross, Craig Shemansky, and um, I know I'm going to forget someone, but, but Dr. Jones in Connecticut, Dr. Charles Ray Jones, uh, describing a patient who had strep and then uh, and continued to have antibodies to strep and then was diagnosed with Lyme and tick-borne infections. And she had, if I remember correctly, she, had, she tested positive to Lyme, to Babesia, and to Bartonella and not to, not to mycoplasma. And she responded to what, what turned out to be pretty aggressive treatment. I mean, she was on IV antibiotics. She was on multiple polypharmaceutical poly regimen, and she was on IVIG, and, but she eventually had a full recovery. It was a long haul, but she eventually did well. And of course, it, it's very interesting to me in that case, we don't know which bug or perhaps combination of bugs triggered this PAN syndrome, right? Um, but, um, but it's interesting, and I actually talked to the authors of this article about it. They stated she had a particularly good response to clindamycin, which they said suggested Lyme disease. And I actually wrote them, I said, actually the response to clindamycin suggests Babesia. Clinda is one of the early treatment, early, you know, before Mepron, we used clindamycin and quinine together to treat Babesia. And we still use clindamycin in the treatment of Babesia. This is very interesting. So a second article uh, was written by uh, Dr. Fallon at Columbia. And I think Dr. Cunningham, famous for the Cunningham panel, I think. And, and what they did was they looked at a, a group of Lyme patients and found these antineuronal neuronal antibodies that we see in kids with PANS. And they compared that to children who did not have Lyme disease, who did not have these antibodies. You know, that's very interesting, but here's the issue. We know that Bartonella and mycoplasma can 
trigger this PANS response. And in studies like the ones that Fallon and Cunningham just published this month, they did not screen for Bartonella and mycoplasma. In other words, we don't really know if Borrelia burgdorferi, the, the microbe responsible for Lyme disease, was the, was the triggering agent. And, oh. and in so many studies, so many studies that are done in, with, uh, with Lyme disease, they don't separate the, out the co-infections, which admittedly is a hard task because the most common ones, Babesi and Bartonella, the testing is, is fairly insensitive, particularly if you use routine commercial labs. You know, you'll do much better if you send it to Igenex and so on. But, but still, you know, we're not talking about 100% sensitivity, um, especially with Bartonella. It, it's still not a great test. So, um, so I, basically what I'm going to say in terms of my clinical impression is that Bartonella and mycoplasma in my patient population seem to trigger more of these neuropsychiatric complaints among my Lyme patients than Lyme or Babesia. I shouldn't say that. Babesia certainly can cause a lot yeah. um, too. Uh, so I'm going to add Babesia to that mix. But I would say Bartonella is the worst. I, you know, when I see kids Absolutely. with Absolutely. That's something else, by the way. These kids can, can actually have, be psychotic. Uh, night tears while sleepwalking. And then my son would wake up and vomit. Uh, it was horrible. These are not things that families should be experiencing because they're solvable. Mm -hmm. So um, many thanks to the dear uh, Dr. Jones for his decades of service, by the way is do you see seizures and staring seizures with these types of infections with pans pandas before we move on to the next question? I have seen that in a very occasional patient. It's, it hasn't been a common presentation. Okay. Have, you know, I've also seen something called pseudo seizures. It's not a real seizure in that um, uh, people remain conscious, mm -hmm. but uh, suddenly their bodies go limp and they fall to the ground and then uh, there's no post-ictal stage, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, they're not having some uh, obtundation following. They're, they're fully present afterwards. Um, we call those pseudo-seizures. Uh, so I see those more often, but not, but not frequently. Yeah, we had one son who had uh, staring seizures, is how I would say it. Um, <clears throat> one day, we the kids were very young. We were dropping, I was dropping my daughter off at school, and I turned around and looked at um, one of my sons, and it's like he's in there, but not in there. Mm -hmm. If you went like this, nothing would happen. His eyes yeah. are open. He's breathing. Everything's fine. You would never notice, and he was probably doing this for a while before I started noticing it, but it was a few times a day he'd do this. Uh, but the day I dropped my daughter off at school, he was a toddler. Um, he said, uh, mom, are we going to take Sissy to school? And I said, uh, but we just left the parking lot, you know, like we had been doing this for two years. Right. So, uh, it's one of those things that I don't think physicians fully understand the breadth and the scope of this, these diseases when they're bunched together 
families don't even know what we're looking at. Doctors don't know what we're looking at. And, and it's all so different. So um, I, that's my goal in trying to bring all of this to the forefront is um, these are family experiences. I'm not ashamed and embarrassed. We didn't ask for a tick bite. And you, sir, are one of the heroes because you're brave enough to talk about these things that uh, we're seeing uh, from our last interview. People are, are clearly saying you have the most sensitive population mm -hmm. um, uh, with you know, presentations with Lyme and co-infections. So, Christina, I'll, um, I'll just mention that uh, Bartonella is probably the biggest culprit when we see seizure disorders in, uh, with tick-borne infections. In fact, the very, very first description in the United States of Bartonella as a tick-borne infection were four people hospitalized with seizure disorders uh, okay. and not responding to the, Lyme treatment, which they tested positive for, yep. tested positive for Bartonella as well. And when they were treated aggressively, intravenous antibiotics, uh, they responded, their seizures went away. That's fantastic knowledge because my son had, of course, Bartonella and it went undiagnosed with him um, a few years. You know, he was uh, seven. So mm -hmm. uh, he's beautiful, six foot two, healthy as a horse, pitcher mm -hmm. for his school baseball team. Um, I always want to impart hope on our audience, whether they're a researcher, a patient, or a physician, that patients do get better, and we're, we're one of them. But it took, uh, boy, like two years of treatments for my son, and he was our sickest um, firstborn. Uh, I have heard that's typical uh, firstborn son gets a lot of the toxins from the mother, but so uh, God love these kids. Um, others can do it by your help and God's grace. We'll, we'll all get there. So um, do you see that these kids are common targets of bullying and um, families, friends not understanding what these people are going through? I don't want to just say kids, but yeah. I've heard an overwhelming response in the community that this is common. You know, um, these, my experience of these children is that they have so much social anxiety. And they have so much anxiety that can manifest in terms of social anxiety that there's not a lot of interaction with their friends. Uh, mm -hmm. Some of them just, they're, they're agoraphobic. They don't want to leave the house to go to school. You know, they're, COVID has really helped them, which is a little ironic. Um, so, you know, the thing of it is to think of as a parent is um, your child may not be disabled and in a wheelchair, et cetera, but there are other manifestations of these illnesses that I think it's prudent to bring the rest of the community in on at a reasonable level because obviously the people you're speaking to aren't gonna understand, right? what's going on, why your kid might have tics, OCD, anxiety, hyperactivity, ADD. These things come out in conversations with their friends as they have in my life um, from me. So people don't understand what they're looking at when somebody appears to say something odd or you know, sounding stupid or appearing weird or hyperactive or different. Um, a lot of times I have found in my own family even, but in the community, that's real common. 
that people don't get the support they need because people don't under understand what they're looking at. Uh, what is the best treatment for pandas discussed in your book? It was a great, great, great section, and I can't wait to get to the stomach stuff, but um, more to talk about there from your book, but it's a great section, pandas, pans. Okay. Um, since I wrote it a couple of years ago, at least, I, I wish I could remember exactly what I wrote. But in, <laughs> but in terms of treatment, uh, first of all, people should know there really are not significant controlled studies out there right? with sizable numbers and so on. And we also have to remember that we're dealing with different microbes that mm -hmm. can generate the syndrome, making it even more difficult to come up with some sort of standard treatment regimen. But there right. is, is general agreement that anti antibiotics and prolonged antibiotics are indicated. And the most common antibiotic in the literature is Zithromax. But as you know, if we're dealing with tick-borne infections, like, like the girl that was presented in the, in the February article by Cross and Shimasanki and so on, um, you know, she was tr probably treated with half a dozen different antibiotics at different times. Yeah. And then the, the second line of treatment is intravenous gamma globulin. Now, IVIG can be very helpful. Basically, what IVIG is, is we're actually giving human antibodies to people. Yeah. And it does boost the immune system, but interestingly, also has an anti-inflammatory effect. It's really the only prescription agent which both boosts the immune system and has this paradoxical benefit of being anti-inflammatory. So... Um, it's, it turns out to be, to be a challenging agent. And the reason is it's ex extremely expensive. It can cost up to $10,000 an injection and this infusion, which you have to sit for four plus hours, uh, you get every three weeks. And, and so unless you're a billionaire, you know, you need insurance and right. not surprisingly insurance keeps on raising the bar so that it's hard, it's hard to get approval. There is an exception. Illinois has mandated that insurance companies have to cover all treatment for this, for this condition. And, and I can imagine that there are people moving to Illinois just for that reason. Absolutely. I, I would be surprised if that weren't true. Just like people were moving to Colorado with, for their kids with seizure disorders so they could get CBD and, and THC yeah. and so on. Um, so that's the second line of treatment, IVIG, and then there's all sorts of all sorts of supportive treatments. Before I but before I go there, mm -hmm. um, Dr. Amiram Katz is a neurologist in in Connecticut, a Yale trained neurologist. He's a good friend. He has seen well over 200 people with the Pan syndrome and Lyme disease, and he has found that penicillin given intramuscularly, so okay. a low dose shot once a week has been particularly effective. And we don't know why, I mean, we've talked about it. There's nothing in the literature that, that penicillin has anti-inflammatory action. And we're talking about a relatively low dose. We're not talking about higher doses that we do use in 
her neurological Lyme. And there are some kids who turn around really well with that. Uh, I've been very impressed. I've had a handful of kids who've done quite well with these injections and usually give them a series of 10 injections once a week. If there's no response after that, it's not worth continuing. But if there is a good response, then it is worth continuing. In terms of supportive treatment, probably there's a few things to consider. One is diet. Uh, and I guess we'll be talking about diet when you want to talk about the gastrointestinal system. But, but yeah. food, food sensitivities can, can trigger these uh, neuroinflammatory reactions. And, uh, and I see it particularly with yeast, by the way. I have a young woman patient right now whose anxiety goes off the roof if she goes off her, her yeast diet or if she herxes on an anti-yeast uh, agent. Yeah. Um, so food sensitivities are important. Mast cell inflammation can be Thank you. Important. That's a big one. Yeah. So, uh, you know, chromalin or gastrochrome, usually starting at a relatively low dose, like maybe 50 milligrams a day and slowly increasing it. Again, in some, some of these uh, kids and adolescents that we're treating, it can have a profound effect. You never know. Their routine anti-inflammatories like ibuprofen sometimes help somewhat. Um, and then there's, there's uh, uh, antidepressants, sometimes help somewhat. Uh, antipsychotics, which sometimes are necessary um, because you know, some of these kids actually have pull out psychotic episodes. I have a patient right now who has hallucinations every day. She yeah. knows that these hallucinations aren't real, but then periodically she has a full-blown psychotic meltdown and she's in a fetal position screaming because these these horrible hallucinations have become real they're uh, terrorizing oh my god you know it, it really is terrible um, one of our sons had them sleepwalking i explained that's yeah. the things he would say that's what i mean by terrifying it really is terrifying to the person experiencing it and the family trying to keep them safe while it's going on it's terrifying, terrifying. and here's a little this is something to consider because I've seen it work in a few people. THC, tetrahydrocannabinol from cannabis. It, it, we use it as a sleep agent frequently in patients. I read that in your book. Excellent. It, so it, it, it improves the amount of time that we spend in the stage three or four of the sleep cycle, which is when we get more restorative sleep. Right. But it decreases the amount of time in REM sleep. It decreases oh. the amount of time that we dream. And I have had patients with night terrors and just bad nightmares that go away when they take THC at bedtime. Huh, that's wonderful. Uh, how do you manage pain for these patients? Some of the things I see within the Lyme community pages I'm on, um, there's uh, two Facebook groups that are really great. Um, pandas for parents and i believe the other one's something like um uh uh texas well i'm in the homeschoolers for pandas parents and then also there's uh texas um parents of pandas 
but a lot of the times they're talking about Advil. Can you tell me a little bit about that for treatment for PANS? I mentioned you know? ibuprofen uh, just before, which is, which is yeah. Advil. And, and it can, I've, I've seen it help with some of the pain syndromes. It's occasional but unusual that it actually helps with the neuroinflammation in terms of the neuropsychiatric symptoms. Oh, wow. Why do you think that a pain, well, I guess because it's anti-inflammatory, right? Of course, it's, you know, we, we use Advil and ibuprofen, which is ibuprofen. We use it for pain all the time. I mean, I don't, but people do. Yeah, I don't either. Yeah. Um, there's certainly enough money is spent on advertisements to suggest that a lot of people must be using it, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, it's interesting that I, while I see it help with pain syndromes to some degree, uh, I rarely see it help with the actual inflammation, neuroinflammation, you know. Yeah, the, that's what I'm hoping the, for, the, yeah. The brain on fire. So, you know, to the extent that it might help, it's, it's worth trying. Um, okay, you know, this is uh, somewhat steering us off topic, but I promise to steer us right back. When you mention brain inflammation, if these kids or adults as well are experiencing um, this type of a symptom, people, patients do actually say that uh, brain on fire terminology together. Um, I have seen phosphatidylcholine be uh, used successfully even as IVs. Is there any use of that or what else for brain on fire would you recommend for these? I wonder if it's somewhat of a, you know, neuropathy or something type of a situation in my experience. So um, they often coincide. That is, the neuropathy involves the peripheral nervous system, the nerves. The brain is part of the central nervous system. Okay, the central nervous system would be the, the cerebrum, the midbrain, and the spinal cord, and all the nerves coming out, that's the peripheral nervous system. Okay. And when there's inflammation in one area, there's often inflammation in more than one area. So it's, it's not infrequent that someone who has a, a brain on fire symptom with neuropsychiatric symptoms might also have some symptoms of neuropathy, which would be tingling and numbness and sharp pains and electric pains and burning pains burning thank you creepy okay. crawlies you yeah, mentioned in your book yeah it feels like there are bugs crawling on Ants, it. yeah yeah thank you so um so all of that is neuroinflammation and the most important thing of course is to try to knock the bugs down to the point where they're not generating this inflammation anymore, but we also want to treat the we want to treat it at, all, at everywhere we can. In terms of decreasing the inflammation, you know, we mentioned using non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. We don't want to use corticosteroids uh, like prednisone, which will suppress the immune system, and then the bugs come out and party and. Typically, people relapse after being put on steroids. It works. Usually, yeah, no good it reason. works. Um, so, uh, I, I, I'd like to go back to cannabis. CBD is really an excellent anti neuroinflammatory. 
and I use that a lot. It, and I would say that patients in particular tell me that it helps with pain and it helps with anxiety. And sometimes it helps with other symptoms as well. The THC can do the same thing, but THC can also have mood altering effects, which you know we don't generally want. Um, that's, a, that's a whole other topic. We don't have to go there now. The, yeah. um, but it, THC is also good for pain and it's also very good for sleep. I mean, I'm, it's not a bad thing, but we just have to be more careful. The CBD, which is totally legal everywhere. I mean, you can get it on the internet. There's thousands of companies now generating it. Um, so um, I use a lot of CBD in my patients. I just get really good feedback about that. But yes. I also use curcumin and boswellia as natural anti-inflammatories, uh, which sometimes really help a lot. Um, we talked about uh, dealing with mast cell issues, and then there's a whole list of things that, that we can use for mast cells um, and to, to decrease mast cell degranulation, antihistamines, uh, and uh, diamine oxidase, and so on. Um, okay, so those are the main anti-inflammatories that you prescribe. So um, what about detox baths? I had a lot of luck treating my kids when they were really sick with mm -hmm. making sure that the detox baths were as hot as they could tolerate. We dry brushed first, hot water, and then the ingredients, something like uh, two cups starting out with a peroxide, two cups apple cider vinegar, and two cups baking soda. And then as you said in one of our last videos, you work up to six cups of each. Is that typical for what you might? So this is particularly in people experiencing Herxheimer reactions. And I wanna preface that with saying, Herxheimer reactions are not good for you. Right. I know of doctors who say, oh, you're going to have a big Herxheimer reaction, and that's a good thing because we're killing the bugs, and then you're going to get better. It is not a good thing. It is really not good for you. It's causing significant inflammation in your body, and that's the whole problem, the inflammation right. in your body. Yeah. Uh, so I try to mitigate, avoid them as much as possible to some, ex to some extent that they're unavoidable. But... Um, but I really do do my best to mitigate that by starting things slowly, never starting two things at once and so on. Okay, but if someone's having a Herxheimer reaction, and as I'm sure you're aware, especially with some of these uh, uh, botanical extracts, some of these herbs, which one would think would be more mild and gentle, one drop is enough to send them through the roof it's it's really it'll put a, you in bed yeah absolutely so so for herxheimer reactions we're talking about detox bath we use i use a lot and i do recommend particularly baking soda and epsom salts and like you said six cups each in hot water for some people it's it's pretty dramatic I suggest that people drink a lot of water with lemon, which is alkalizing, but also Alka-Seltzer Gold, which we talked about. Very the last, good. The last interview, yeah. I really sometimes very good responses to Alka-Seltzer Gold. Mm -hmm. um, also, uh, toxin binders. You know, simple ones like like charcoal, and then you know, there's a whole list of ones that we use. And as you know, I we talk about that next section. Yeah. Okay. So. Um, 
those are the main things, but there's also some uh, Nutrimedics, for example, makes Berber Pinella, which some people find very effective. Excellent. Yeah, so there's a, there's a handful of things that usually will mitigate the response. Okay, so um, I think you must have read my questions because ahead of time, you answered the last two and you've done it before. You're on fire today, Dr. K, I appreciate it. Um, the last one does mention, how does MCAS play a role in PANDAS and Lyme disease complex? And the one before that, can adults have PANDAS? I wanted to make sure we talked about those. Um, but MCAS is such a huge issue. We could do our um, a whole hour interview just on that. So maybe um, that would be worthwhile in the future. But is there anything else you can think of you might like to add to how we can help PANDAS or PANS patients um, handle the overabundance of histamine? Well, it's, it's like everything else with Lyme. Some people respond to something behind door A and some people respond <laughs> to what's behind door B. So you really never know. You know, you can separate it into categories and they're the mast cell stabilizer. I just want to remind the viewers, mast cells are, they're actually primitive white cells. They're one of our early defenses from an evolutionary standpoint. And they contain almost 200 inflammatory mediators. And when they release those mediators, there's inflammation. And sometimes that inflammation is in very obvious allergic reactions. Anaphylaxis is, is uh, it can be a result of mast cell degranulation. And, but sometimes it can just be general systemic inflammation. It can be neuroinflammation with the issues we're talking about with PANS. Um, and then the question is, well, what's triggering that degranulation? Well, guess what? Lyme can do it. Allergens can do it. And remember that people with these tick-borne infections tend to develop sensitivity disorders. And now we have an additional issue that's triggering, triggering mast cells, that is foods, inhalants, molds. These can trigger mast cell degranulation. So, so one, one, uh, one group of agents that we use to help stabilize mast cell activation syndrome is, um, is our agents that stabilize the mast cell. We, we talked about chromalin and gastrochrome. I, I remember in the old days, pre-Lyme, being able to give gastrochrome to people who had anaphylactic reactions from say eating shellfish, then they mm -hmm. could eat shellfish which I don't recommend doing at home. I mean, yeah. something that I would I'd literally say, you got to be in the parking lot of the emergency room if you're going to do this. You know, if you really, really want to do it. I, I wasn't highly recommending it, but they did it. Uh, you know, it, it can work, can work that well. And then besides chromalin, the quercetin, which is a natural bioflavonoid, usually from citrus. Ketodafin is another one that's available in compounding pharmacies. These are all mast cell stabilizers. Typically, we want to take them a half an hour to 45 minutes before a meal to help reduce any reactions to foods. And then there's just antihistamines. And yeah. the antihistamines are, you know, the regular over-the-counter things that we can get. And, and when mast cell activation problems are big time, you typically want to take them twice a day. 
and mm -hmm. maybe take two different kinds, one in the morning, one in the evening. And, um, and then there, so regular antihistamines uh, hit uh, the type one, they're called type one antihistamines, and there's type two, which are what are typically used to actually suppress gastric acid. Zantac is, I don't think any law is available right now, perhaps at a compound. Pepsid AC. But Pepsid is and Tagamet, both of these um, will, will are very good antihistamines, but they suppress stomach acid. Not a good thing to do over a long term. Maybe we can talk about that when we talk about the gastrointestinal tract. So that's, you know, that's another way we deal with it. Meanwhile, uh, diamine oxidase, but that's an enzyme that actually breaks down histamine. For some people, that's, that really helps as well. And, and again, they take it with the mast cell stabilizers a half an hour, 45 minutes before the meal. But, you know, there's, there's specialized diets. And I do have this in my book, you know, here are foods that contain histamine. Here, here are foods that, that trigger the release of histamine and so on. And depending on one's level of sensitivity, they have to go on some pretty dramatic diets. Um, you know, I've certainly seen that happen that as especially in the context of tick-borne illness where people develop such severe sensitivity syndromes um, then they sometimes diets can be really really tough well in my house i liken it to um i say that um you know i have four little ones for the audience that have gone through lyme treatment etc we're not deprived of any food that we want to eat for the most part i'll say um, we simply just replace it. Able to still enjoy food and enjoy our lives and, you know, family time at the dinner table is a role in my house every night. Um, so it, food is a big deal. When I post on the internet, sometimes I, I post uh, foodie mama because we're not deprived. It's a, it's a fun thing. Both the little ones love to cook. And um, we all, as you know, have gone through... Um, rotation diets and skin allergy shots for food and mold and yeast, et cetera, for the allergies that we all have. So cooking is difficult. So that may be another one. I noticed you and your wife wrote a cookbook. Is that right? My mother. Your mother? I, in my research for you and interviewing you, I found it. It's beautiful. It's a, it's a funny story. My mom, uh, was way ahead of her time. I mean, I was, was. I was raised on, you know, just dark greens, no white bread, no soda pop, no sugar. And, you know, I lusted for Wonder Bread and just peanut yes. butter and jelly, right? Um, I love bread and butter. And then she ended up uh, writing uh, at, for Prevention Magazine. She was the food editor of Prevention Magazine for 25 years. And she wrote wow. about a dozen cookbooks. But when I say cookbooks, there's a lot of narrative in her cookbooks. Okay. Uh, I mean, she was a writer before she wrote health things. She, she was a, a writer. She was always a writer. Um, and and this, this particular cookbook, which, which was the, the Antioxidant Save Your Life cookbook, when she, yeah. presented, she presented it to the publisher who said, well, you know, you're really going to need a doctor to co-author this with you. And she said, not a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so really, That's fantastic. Oh, 
the only thing I did was I wrote the preface for the book and it's really her book, but it has my name on it. And um, yeah, uh, she, she was an amazing, amazing lady who walked her talk and she was considered a total nut, total nutcase. There just weren't that many people back then. You know, there's health food stores, very, very few health food stores. You want to buy vitamins, you had to um, do mail order and, and so on. The only place where you could learn about nutrition was Prevention Magazine, which is a totally different journal than the slick rag it is now. Um, the, Ro the Rodales, I'm uh, just going to give a shout out to the Rodales. They started the organic farming movement. They, they, their first journal was Organic Gardening and Farming, which they published for 20 years at a loss. Oh my God. Isn't that amazing. Uh, whoo. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that, but thank you. Thank you. And um, also, uh, you know, I always thought of taking under, under the chin happily when I'd go to the grocery store and spend 20 cents extra on organic or even a dollar 50 extra on organic. I, I always told my husband, right, we're budgeting for a family of six. Um, we're paying forward the movement. And that's our part. And that's part of our, our war, so to speak, of, um, you know, our generation is um, speak with your money. When you go to buy American or whatever else, speak with your money and same with uh, buying local and buying non-pesticide ridden food, non-hormone, non-antibiotic food. It makes a big difference in helping to clean up your diet. Don't just think um, getting rid of the cheeseburgers is going to cut it. Um, so uh, that's a, a big um, introduction to our next section, Dr. Gay. <laughs> so um, I could talk for hours on those topics. I love it. Um, super fun. Um, I don't know if you're aware, but I had a wellness studio, yoga studio for 14 years. That's what I did while I raised my kids. And um, due to Lyme disease last year, I closed it so I can take better care of Mason, who was struggling over the last uh, couple years. We're all doing well. So power to the patients out there. They can too. <laughs> 